pray. We just sang this, O oh Lord, our gracious Master and my God, assist me now to proclaim your truth, your word. Give us ears to hear and a heart that is willing to receive, believe, and obey your word. May your spirit minister to us in a thousand different ways from the story we will learn today and an introduction to the text that we plan on studying. Lord, we don't want this to be an academic exercise. We want your spirit to change us and by us to bring about real change in the lives of those we know who perhaps don't know you. And so, Father, we ask your help now. Bless us, Father, with your grace and your spirit and your word. For we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We're in Second Timothy, or we will be in a little while. If you want to turn someplace in your Bible, maybe Acts chapter 9 would be a good place. It'll be a little while before we get there, too. The epistle we're considering today presents Paul's final exhortation to his young protege, Timothy. After this short letter, we have no further communication from the Apostle Paul. These are his final words to the church. These are the last concerns of his heart as it relates to Timothy's life and ministry. And because they are his final words, we should pay special attention to what he has to say, especially men who are in my position who day after day and week after week stand before people and proclaim the Lord's truth. My plan, beginning this morning, is to lead us through a relatively short series of messages on the epistle of 2 Timothy. But since this letter comes to us at the end of Paul's life, I thought it might be helpful to take a few minutes to refresh on Paul from the beginning of his life. And so let's launch into this study with a brief biography, since it seems like the thing to do right now. The last time I preached, we did another biography on John Bunyan. Maybe I'm just in the mood, but this is helpful to me. I hope that every time I come and introduce a new book, my goal is always to lay out as a foundation kind of the, the context and, and, and understand kind of a bird's eye view of the entire book. And so that's my assignment for today. So let's begin with the biography of the Apostle Paul, and I'm calling this The Lost Life of a Professional Zealot. And by lost, I mean spiritually lost. He was religious. He was a religious unbeliever. Went to church every Sunday, ministered from the temple every day, and he was lost. The name Paul from the Greek is polis, meaning little, which perhaps explains why he is often portrayed by artists and biographers as a rather short person. One unique characteristic of Paul is the fact that he is identified by two names. In the book of Acts, Luke refers to him as Saul, also known as Paul. Among his fellow citizens of Rome and other Gentile acquaintances, he would have been Paul. And among his Jewish friends and family, however, he would have been known as Saul, perhaps named after Shirley, named after the first king of Israel, 
After all, Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin, and so was Saul. And so his name was Saul. Best I can tell, uh, a boy born to Jewish parents having a Roman and a Hebrew name was not typical in ancient times. Usually a person lived either among the Roman world or the Jewish world, but it would have been rare to find a full-blooded Jew who had also had, had official citizenship in the Roman Empire. But so it was for Paul's family. And, and so it was for this young man, this one man who would become the great Apostle Paul. His birthplace was not somewhere in the lands of Israel, but in a Roman city called Tarsus, located on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. We're not told how Paul's family happened to be located in Tarsus or how his father, who was a respected Pharisee, happened to achieve the status of Roman citizenship. That was rare, especially for a Jew. And even in Paul's dealings with one of the Roman centurion, uh, the centurion found out he was a, a citizen of Rome, and he said, how in the world? Uh, I had to pay a huge price to become a citizen of Rome. And yet Paul was born into it. It seems clear, however, that Paul's father was an educated man of means and reputation. And what we know for sure about his son, young Saul of Tarsus, was that he was destined to make an impact not only on Tarsus, not only on Israel, but the whole world, even Texas, <laughs> even New Jersey. <laughs> Tarsus was a bustling city of merchants and manufacturing. It was particularly known for making goat's hair cloth and other, other kinds of fabric. In fact, it was probably here in Tarsus, perhaps later in life, that Paul learned his trade of tent making. As a boy, he was cradled in Orthodox Judaism. With regard to his education, in the early years, he was homeschooled, no doubt. His parents being his teachers in accordance with God's command in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the core of his education would have focused on the law of God. There was no New Testament, right? The law of God and the history of Israel. Parents would have taught them the history of Israel. And every year, this is interesting, every year at the Feast of First Fruits, he would have joined his family as they traveled all the way to Jerusalem and went to the temple for the Feast of First Fruits, and they would together recite the creed of Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 9. I didn't know this before this past week of study. And here's how it reads. You think of a little boy growing up in a home, Jewish home, and all the time they're hearing this, they're hearing it, they're hearing it, they're hearing it, they're memorizing it. And here's what they say. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there. Few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid us on hard labor. And then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, 
I bring the first of the fruits of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. Every child would have learned that. Every Jew would be able to recite it at the Feast of First Fruits. This is something of his education. And so for the earliest years of his life, he would have been taught the special place that the nation of Israel enjoyed in the heart of God. He would have learned of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would have become acquainted with Moses and Aaron and the 40 years of wandering in the desert because of the nation's unbelief and sin. He would have heard of the miracles of crossing the Red Sea and eventually, some 40 years later, crossing the Jordan River. He would have heard of the terrible story of how because of Israel's idolatry, how they rejected God and turned to idols, God sent Nebuchadnezzar to take God's people captive for 70 years in the land of Babylon. And he would have learned the importance of, listen carefully, never ever allowing himself or his nation to turn their backs on God and be cast into exile again. At some point, probably at age five or six, Jewish fathers assumed greater responsibility for the education of their sons. This included in apprenticeships in whatever the father's occupation may be. In Saul's case, his father was a Pharisee, one of the ruling class of Israel, though he lived in Tarsus. And so young Saul would have been educated in the synagogue classes, where the focus was probably, primarily, wrote memory of the Old Testament scriptures. They would have heard the stories. They would have memorized the texts. And when you read the writings of Paul later in his life, you can, you can only conclude that young Saul of Tarsus in those synagogue classes learned his lessons well. His mastery of the Old Testament is remarkable. The centerpiece of such education was attending synagogue every Sabbath. This was the beginning of education for everyone. By the way, it's because of the synagogue schools and the, daily, or the weekly uh, repetition of the stories of the Old Testament and the need to learn to read and to write, Israel has been named, uh, and, and has been named, I don't know when, but it's commonly known that they have been called the most literate nation on the planet. So every synagogue, every Sabbath, they would go to hear the rabbi read the scriptures and explain the wall. Not the wall, the law. <laughs> Been listening to the news too much. <laughs> this activity inspired the Muslims. This is interesting. It inspired the Muslims to name the Jews the people of the book. Oh, that Calvary Bible Church would be known as the people of the book. His father, being a faithful Jew, ensured young Saul would have received elementary education in the house of the book, which is what they called the synagogue. And while the teaching was religiously oriented, reading, writing, and elementary arithmetic was also taught, Learning to read and write would equip Saul to obey the command of the Lord to all Israelite men to write the precepts of the Lord on the doorposts of their gates. And by the time he was 10, he would have been able to be studying the Mishnah with its involved interpretations of the law of God. 
When he turned 13, the age of manhood, he was expected to assume personal responsibility for obedience to the law. Saul's father sent him then to Jerusalem from Tarsus to complete his education, probably the longest part of his education. There, young Jewish men would meet with scribes and with rabbis. Sometimes these religious teachers would come to the home. Sometimes the students would go to the synagogue or even to the temple to get educated. In fact, you you recall in Luke chapter 2, this is precisely where we find Jesus when he was 12 years old in the temple, sitting among the teachers and listening to them, asking them questions and answering theirs. This is what Saul's education would have looked like, at least in part. And so it was for every young man who hoped to become a rabbi in Israel. In Saul's case, however, he was apprenticed to one particular rabbi whose name was Gamaliel. This Gamaliel was a Pharisee, an eminent doctor of the law, and a member of the Sanhedrin. They were the ruling party of, they were the ruling commission or the group that met periodically to lead Israel under the Romans. And Gamaliel was the first of only seven rabbis to be given the title Rabban, meaning master teacher. This was Saul's personal tutor. In his day, he was perhaps the most respected rabbi in Israel, this Gamaliel. This is the same Gamaliel who in Acts chapter 5, when the enraged Sanhedrin sought to slay the apostles for their bold testimony of Jesus Christ, he stood up in the council and urged caution on the ground that if the new doctrine, this gospel of Jesus, were of God, they would not be able to overthrow it. And if it were of man, it would perish under its own weight. Well, under the tutelage of this renowned scholar, Saul would have had opportunity to broaden his education in every direction, not only Old Testament law, but Greek, philosophy, poetry, logic, rhetoric. And young Saul excelled in them all. The more accomplished she became in intellect and wisdom and leadership, the greater reputation became his among the Jewish elite. Moreover, it seems that the heights of his intellect and reputation were matched only by his zeal in the religion of his nation. Like his father before him, Saul attached himself to the Pharisees, the most conservative, strict party of the Jewish Sanhedrin. As such, he was determined to resist, listen carefully, he was determined, as all the Pharisees were, to resist the efforts of Rome, to conquer them, finally, and impose new beliefs and new ways of life upon them. But it wasn't only the Romans they were concerned about. It was also any sect in Israel that might undermine the rules and traditions of the rabbis. By the time Paul was 30, he was already an acknowledged leader in Judaism. We know that because Acts chapter 9, verse 14, we're told that the chief priests, who were the highest ruling class in Israel, had entrusted him with the authority to bind in chains all who called upon the name of Jesus. Let me just prepare you. It's hard to think of Paul in the way I'm about to describe. But this is how the text speaks of young Saul. He had authority to bind in chains all who called upon the name of Jesus, and this he did 
with relentless zeal. Years later, after becoming a devoted disciple of Jesus, Paul reflected upon this season of his life, and he confessed in Acts 26.10, I not only locked many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Saul became a violent persecutor of the church. In today's vernacular, we might probably refer to him as a terrorist or a religious hitman or even a Nazi. His very presence inspired fear in the hearts of those whom he had authority to arrest, imprison, flog, beat with rods, and condemn to pub public execution when necessary or desirable. In the New Testament, the New Testament really doesn't acquaint us with Saul of Tarsus. We know nothing about him until chapter 7 of the book of Acts. And then only in the context of an angry mob stoning that dear saint of God, Stephen, to death. We read in that passage, And the witnesses lay down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's the first mention of him in the New Testament. It's interesting to note, as a side note, that Jesus and Saul were contemporaries. They were born only maybe a couple of years apart. We, we don't even know, but it was very, very close. It's a possibility they could have been born the same year. And that means that Saul was likely in Israel during the three years that Jesus ministered there, and yet there's no mention of him in the Gospels. Perhaps he was one of the unnamed Pharisees who attempted to outwit Jesus at the behest of the Sanhedrin. We just don't know. What we do know is that after the resurrection, Saul of Tarsus was determined to crush this seemingly traitorous Jewish sect called the Way. That's what they called Christianity back then. The Way, the fledgling church of Jesus Christ. Paul was determined to crush it and anyone who was a part of it. To be sure, Saul was making excellent progress. He was effectively destroying the church. In Acts 8.3, we read, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And believe me, prison back then was not like prison today. You didn't get your three squares in a, a dry bed. You were thrown into a hole in the ground, essentially. How many precious families were mercilessly torn apart? How many children lost their fathers? How many watched their dear mothers being violently dragged off? Can you imagine? And all the while, Saul thought he was being a faithful servant of God. He said in Acts chapter 26, I myself was convinced that I ought to do these things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's Paul's own, own words. And this was in fulfillment of prophecy, by the way, a prophecy of Jesus himself who warned, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That was Saul. It wasn't only Saul, but it was certainly Saul. 
It seemed there was no end to the terror that this young tyrant could inflict upon the church until he eradicated every Christian from the face of the earth. But then, or should I say, but God. Something happened that was so shocking, so earth-shattering, so stupendous that it would change the course of civilization on planet earth forever. And so if you're not there yet, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts 9. It's easy to remember this story and where it is. Nine shine. And if you're not familiar with the story, you'll understand that in a minute. The Damascus Road experience exploded upon Paul's life like a hundred megaton bomb. The blast radius of this event reached to the furthest extremities of Paul's ambitions, intellect, values, and deepest motives of the heart. On this day, everything about him was shattered. Everything shifted. Everything about Paul's life was scrambled and realigned by the sheer force of the magnificent presence of Almighty God. The greatest man in Israel came face to face with the true king of Israel. His life was placed in the balance, and he was found wanting. On that day, Saul came face to face with Jesus. Not Jesus the teacher, not Jesus the miracle worker, or Jesus the sacrificial lamb, but Jesus the supreme and sovereign judge. Don't think for a minute that God is not judgmental. There will be a judgment. No doubt the appearance of Christ before Paul that day was something like the appearance that John saw in Revelation chapter 1. And let me just read that to you. John tells us, He saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his, his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, this is, this is the eyes of judgment. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. My friends, behold, Jesus, the terror and beauty of the Christ of God. And John said, see the parallel here, when I saw him, I fell on my face as though, what? Dead. Same thing happened to Paul. This was exactly Paul's experience There's no record that he saw everything that John saw, but the presence of the living, resurrected Christ crushed the most terrifying man in Israel. So devastating was the force of the appearance of his maker, it knocked him to the ground, and the glory of it blinded him in an instant. The mighty Saul of Tarsus found himself face down in the dust, quivering like a child. 
Well, you know how the story goes from there. Saul remains blind for a few days until Ananias comes under the direction of the Lord. By the way, Ananias protests when the Lord tells him to go find Saul of Tarsus. And he's like, you mean me? (laughs) Got the wrong man. He's scary. Everybody's afraid of Saul. He's here? Can't be good. You want me to go to him? It's like Moses. I want you to go to Egypt. Oh, you got the wrong guy. And the Lord told Ananias, don't be afraid. I'm doing something in him. And he must learn how much he must suffer for the gospel. And Saul remains blind for three days. And then the text says, Ananias came and restored his sight. There were what appeared to be like scales falling off of his eyes. Saul is filled with the Spirit of God, and he is immediately baptized, just like we saw this morning. It was as if Saul had been, how shall we say it, born again. And indeed he was. This persecutor of the church became the foremost preacher of the gospel of Christ. He who had determined to conquer bowed instead in surrender. And having surrendered to God's king, he became the most loyal and devoted subject of God's king. Thus ends the lost life of a professional zealot. Most of the New Testament then records for us the long labor of a faithful servant. It's amazing, the contrast, isn't it? Now let's continue with the story a little bit. Instantly, right there in Damascus, Paul begins preaching. Acts chapter 9, verse 20, reads as follows. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. I mean, everybody knew Saul. They were all amazed. And Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by, look at the next word, proving that Jesus was the Christ. I mean, it's like the next day. He has, what, 24 hours to get his theology right. And he finds himself being an apologist for the Son of God. Proving, I I take that to mean from Scripture, that Jesus was the Christ, the one the nation said that they were waiting for, the one the Pharisees said they were waiting for. But they killed him instead. I can't help but observe here that on the Damascus Road, Saul was not only born again, but his great intellect was also instantly redeemed. He started using the gift of God in his life for the glory of God in his life. Immediately, the Jewish leaders did what they did to Jesus. They sought to kill him. I mean, he hasn't even left Damascus yet. He's only been there for a few days. They find out that he's a turncoat. Now he's on Jesus' side. Now he's, he's got a new commander. It's no longer the Sanhedrin. It's the Son of God. And so they seek to kill him. 
And they, they put soldiers at the gate, temple guards, I think, at the gates of the city. And there's Saul, the great, mighty Saul, hiding. And how does he escape them? Not by any miracle. <laughs> there's that fateful scene where um, the brothers lower him in a basket in the night over the wall, and he escapes. By the way, the last time I preached, I talked about John Bunyan and his sufferings and imprisonment, and there's a whole section of his writings where he talks about um, when to run and when to stand. And he said, I don't know. <laughs> you gotta make the call every time. And here's the Apostle Paul faced with death if he's caught. At other times, he said, take me. This time, he says, hey, can anybody got a basket <laughs> big enough? And he sneaked away. And then Barnabas takes him to Jerusalem. Can you imagine Barnabas walking in to where the apostles are, and he's got by the hand Saul of Tarsus. And he introduces them, they already know him, he introduces him to the apostles there and James, and they receive him. They receive him, they accept him. And then they send him home to Tarsus, where he spends 14 years, no doubt, my guess, studying and teaching and relearning what the Old Testament taught about the Messiah. I expect it was during this period that he also learned how to make tents to support himself on his missions. It is no hyperbole to say that from the first time in, for the first time in his life, even with all the years of theological education, Saul finally understood his Bible. This, by the way, was the same thing that happened to the apostles. After the resurrection, at Pentecost, it became apparent that the disciples finally got it. They finally understood their Bible. For the first time, he understands God's plan for the suffering servant, the Messiah. The Jews didn't believe that the Messiah would come to suffer. He was coming to conquer. But suddenly Saul saw it in the text. You need only read Isaiah 53. With his whole being, he embraces the gospel and salvation by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. It was not a doctrine invented by Martin Luther. It was proclaimed by the Apostle Paul. And no doubt this is precisely what was on his mind when he wrote those magnificent words to the church of Philippi. Don't turn there. Just, just immerse yourself in this. Having heard this whole story of the Apostle Paul, listen to this. Verses 4 through 11 of Philippians 3. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, means both my parents were Jews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You get the point of that? I want to know him. I want to know everything about him. I want to know what it's like to teach like him, to preach like him, to live like him, to suffer like him. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. If there's anyone here today who doubts that God can change a human being, even the most wicked and vile, I mean, really change them from the inside out. You need look no further for evidence. Contrary to that belief, then the Apostle Paul, this Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, the great apostle of Jesus Christ. Some of you think you're so wicked, you're so sinful. There's no way God would accept me. Really? You're worse than Paul. You're worse than Peter who denied him three times. You say, well, Peter wasn't as wicked as I was. Paul was. By the way, so was Moses and others. Don't make your sin greater than God. Don't make your sin greater than the cross. For the rest of his life, Saul, who in his ministry as apostle would be known as Paul, would travel the known world preaching this gospel of Jesus Christ by land, by sea, by any means possible, sometimes with trusted friends, often alone, occasionally with a small party of loyal helpers. Luke is, is with him here. On the first missionary journey, he meets a young man named Timothy who apparently trusted Christ under Paul's preaching. And Paul pressed on. Two years later, Paul came back for his second missionary journey and met Timothy again. And this time he was so impressed. Not only him, if you look at the map, there's a couple of churches that are really close by. I gotta believe that they knew one another and served together. They got together and ordained Timothy to the ministry. Paul laid hands on him and said, hey, what about joining me? You be my disciple. You be my protege. Let me teach you how to, how to minister, how to serve. That's what First and Second Timothy are all about, these pastoral epistles. He was so impressed with Timothy's maturity and godliness and obvious giftedness, the fact that the leaders of those churches were affirming him that he invited him to become one of his closest ministry companions. And before long, he becomes, it becomes apparent that eventually someone would need to take over after Paul's death. He wasn't getting any younger, and he lived a hard life. 
Timothy was the obvious choice. So when we come to the epistle of 2 Timothy, Paul, who having, having endured over the years countless beatings, often to the brink of death, mercilessly lashed, having been stoned and left for dead, shipwrecks times three nights and days in the deep, danger from robbers, danger from his own people. This list, by the way, comes from him. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, danger from false brothers, men who used to minister with him, who were now against him. Some of them he names in 2 Timothy. In toil, in hardship, he says, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold, in exposure, and it goes on. The result of his years of ministry made all the suffering worthwhile. For all across Asia Minor, today it's the land of Turkey, churches have been planted who were faithfully, though not infallibly, spreading the gospel of Jesus in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And after all of that, he finds himself in a cold and lonely prison cell in Rome, again, waiting for the final verdict from the emperor as to his life. And just before he is executed, we don't know how much before. It could have been a couple of years. It could have been a few weeks. He writes a letter. He, he pens this letter to his faithful friend, and protege, Timothy, who was off doing Paul's bidding elsewhere. And for our purposes, we'll call it the last letter of a spiritual father. This is where we're going to spend the next several months. There are only four chapters in this short letter, but in the few pages, Paul covers a lot of ground. His goal is to offer some final words of encouragement and exhortation about how pastors and believers should pursue faithfulness and fruit, fruitfulness with the gospel. This is all of our responsibility, not just mine and the elders. It's yours as well. And from the beginning, Paul calls upon Timothy to never be ashamed of the gospel. Are you there in, in 2 Timothy? Flip over to 2 Timothy. You might want to see some of these. I'm just going to peruse the text a little bit. In verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I don't know if you picked up on it in my pastoral prayer earlier. But part of my confession, our confession, it comes from this passage because there are times when, dare we admit it, we are ashamed of the gospel. We know we have opportunity, and we fail to speak. Paul's saying, don't do that, Timothy. You're not going to lead anyone to Christ if you don't take risks. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, or me, his prisoner, and be willing to suffer for the privileges of sharing it with others. And why would we be ashamed? Look at verse 9. For God saved us, to a holy calling, not because of our works. It's so important that you understand this. This is the gospel. This is, this is not the gospel of, of American 
middle class believers or, 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 or religious people. It's all about, I think God will weigh me in the balance and discover that really I wasn't that bad. My good outweighed my bad. There is nothing like that in Scripture. It's all about Christ and his righteousness. And so he says, and by the way, he repeats again and again in this letter elements of the gospel, the core of the gospel. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ and before the ages began. Beloved, this is our gospel. In chapter 2, he exhorts Timothy to always be about the business of producing and multiplying spiritual leaders in the church. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This would be no easy task as it requires the constant ministry of the word, constant ministry of the word. And if you're going to teach the word properly, you don't take the concerted effort of rigorous study. So Paul famously says in verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Why? Because he's accurately handling the word of truth. And there is so much preaching going on in the world that has very little or nothing to do with the words of Scripture. Might as well just quote Shakespeare because they know not what the text means. And listen, the meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. You can't just read it one time and, and, and then teach it. You have to think carefully about context and history and by the way, Awana, or children's ministry, that sounds like a parenthetical, doesn't it? It is. <laughs> Awana gets its name from this passage. Do you know that? Here it is. A workman and not ashamed. Awana. It's where our kids come every Sunday night. They play games and they memorize passages of Scripture to their joy and hopefully to their everlasting salvation. And then in chapter 4, he seals the gospel minister's prime directive with strong exhortation, Paul writes, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God, and, and listen to, um, to the things that he is appealing to as, his, as the basis of his charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is no business for the weak at heart. This is no business for the lazy. Throughout the letter, Paul exhorts Timothy to endure and persevere no one makes a great impact on the world by being casual, disengaged, or easily discouraged in ministry. He exhorts Timothy to approach the gospel ministry like a soldier, like an athlete, like a farmer. 
Gospel ministry requires diligent effort and patience, patient endurance. And it involves personal suffering. You may die as a good soldier in your ministry. In this short letter, Paul mentions suffering, his own and that of anyone who strives to be faithful in the gospel ministry. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. You say, well, I've never been persecuted. Maybe you've never offended anyone with the gospel. All who desire to live godly will be persecuted. So Paul invites Timothy to, chapter 1, verse 8, share in my sufferings. Come on, Timothy, jump in. Water's not as bad as you think it is. And all the while, Paul communicates the security and joy that he experiences as a faithful minister of the gospel because, verse 12, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what he has entrusted to me until that day. We'll talk about this later, but the translation on this could go either way. The song, also an accurate translation, says this. I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him against that day. Either way, it works. God has committed his salvation to us. The, the deposit, which is the gospel that we are to guard, I know that he will keep that which he has given me. Or if it's the other way around, Lord, I've entrusted my life to you, my family to you. I've pledged my head to heaven. I'm convinced that you're able to keep it until that day. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about diving into this text. With all of this background, I loved this study this week. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the Apostle Paul. But here's the thing, my friends, whether you're in this room or whether you're in that group down the hall or whether you're watching live stream or some other way, here's the question. The question is not, do you know about Christ? The question is not, do you call yourself a Christian? How about this for a question? If you were to die today and God were to say to you, friend, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Well, I'm good enough. Wrong answer. Well, I've gone to church every day of my, every week of my life. I give money to the church freely. I've helped the poor. I vote. I'm a good American. I never hurt anyone, never murdered anyone. It's not the answer. The only answer that he will receive, except, the only answer that he will accept is something like this. Lord, you shouldn't receive me. The only thing I have to offer you is my sin. I've got nothing else. I believe that you sent your son to die for my sin. You offered Christ. The only thing I have to offer is my sin. The question is not, will I receive you? The question is, will you receive me? I believe. Help my unbelief. Save me. Change me. 
redeem me, cause me to be born again. Give me a new heart. Take from me the heart of stone and replace it with a living heart of flesh that lives and breathes life from and to the Son of God. I plead with you, don't leave today. Don't leave today without doing business with God. Don't walk out of here thinking, well, that was a nice lecture. This isn't about a lecture. This is about eternity, your eternity. And you may be thinking, I didn't know people still believe this stuff. God's people have never stopped believing this stuff because every one of us have been changed by it. We've been radically altered from the heart because of the work of spirit, of the Spirit of God. Will you trust him today? If you'd like some help with that, I'd be happy to meet with you. Or any of our elders. Or ladies, there are women in the church who'd be happy to meet with you. Don't let this day go by. Don't suppress the truth. You have now heard the gospel. Don't resist it. Like the Apostle Paul, just fall on your face and say, Lord, I surrender. Let's pray. Father, this is a marvelous story that you've revealed in the text of Scripture about how you saved one man. And not everyone has such a dramatic tale as the Apostle Paul. Surely no one else has. And yet you call us one by one. And we respond by breathing faith in you. Lord, I pray that that spiritual dynamic, that miracle of the heart would be taking place even now. As someone in the reach of my voice is melting their resistance against you and they're finding a love of Christ that they never knew before. Father, save them, change them. And may their world soon know that something has happened to them Fill them with a desire to read your word, to know your word, to fellowship with your people. Not to earn anything from you, but out of sheer joy and a desire to know you as Paul desired to know you. Father, be glorified in their salvation. For the rest of us, O Lord, I pray that it would inspire worship. That you would freshly give us a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel. I pray that would happen not only in the small groups this week, but around our tables as we eat and fellowship after service today. Lord, we love you. We understand that our love for you is infinitesimally small compared to your great and mighty love for us in Jesus. So we praise you. We worship you with joy. And we give you thanks in the name of our Savior, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. Amen.